the history of the English Bible. We um, took a few week break. I um, mean, we got getting back into it today. Um, to, next week will be the last one as part of the series, and I'm really looking forward to next week's, but we won't get ahead of ourselves. But it's when we're going to really look at some comparisons, um, some of the stuff that's really fascinating. I know, especially when I first learned about it. And um, um, after this series, we're going to be um, getting into the Gospel of John and, and go through that um, verse by verse. I'm going through the Gospel of John and what amazing book in the Bible um, to, to go through. And so to, today, there's going to be some portions where I'm going to go a little bit quicker. Like sometimes there'll be a, a bunch of names on the screen. And I got the names on there just so, you know, it could be um, information um, to show you the facts. But I know that the names aren't necessarily going to be retained. You probably aren't going to remember them as quickly. So I'll often just be teaching about some of those um, that were involved. You could write the names down if you want, or I can even give you the notes um, later. But I want to try to focus on the stuff that you will um, most likely be able to retain. And so today, talking about the history of some of the modern um, English translations of the Bible. And just again, just a quick review about God's um, value on His Word. That um, the Bible says, every word of God is pure. You know, this shows God's importance is on His words. And, you know, I forgot I get, um, put this other scripture on here, but there's even a scripture um, that says that thou hast magnified thy word even above thy name. And, you know, it's the name of Jesus that we're able to get saved. But it's the word that teaches about Jesus that we're able to get saved. And so God's word is highly um, magnified by him. You know, I think we usually want to take our own word seriously. You know what, we want others to take our words seriously. We don't like it when someone says we said something when we did not say it. Or if something is omitted, it's important. And you know, the Bible says, Add thou not unto his words, lest he reprove thee, and thou be found a liar. Deuteronomy says, Ye shall not add unto the word which I command you, neither shall ye diminish aught from it, that ye may keep the commandments of the Lord your God, which I command you. Jesus said, heaven and earth shall pass away, but my word shall not pass away. Now, none of us possess the originals. Nobody does. Now, there's some that possess early copies of the originals, or, but they're copies. They're not the originals. So, God wasn't saying that He was going to preserve the original ink and scroll but it's the words that are contained um, in it. And so he said, Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my word shall not pass away. So his very creation will pass away. And the new heaven and the new earth will be created. But his word will not pass away. And you know, it's just in case we didn't get it the first time. We see it again in Mark. Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my word shall not pass away. And then again in Luke. Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my word shall not pass away. 1 Peter 1.23 says, Being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible by the word of God, which liveth and abideth forever. 
For all flesh is this grass, and all the glory of man is the flower of grass. The grass withereth, and the flower thereof falleth away, but the word of the Lord endureth forever. And this is the word which by the gospel is preached unto you. And so here we have again, now you know what? God's word is incorruptible, okay? His actual word. Now people will bring corruptions out, but then it's no longer God's word, it becomes man's word, or it becomes man's word that maybe contains parts of God's word. And, um, but the word of the Lord will endure forever. Now we see in the very beginning, now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said unto the woman, Yea, hath God said? Satan is asking a question. He is causing doubt. Did God really say this? You shall not eat of every tree of the garden. And then he goes on and says, you know what the reason God's saying this is because he doesn't want you to become a God like him. And you know, even today, the Mormon church teaches that, you know what, people could um, progress in new divine godhood. And they even say that it was a good thing that Eve partook of the fruit so that they could fall, so they could then become gods. You know, that's just the lie of Satan. But Satan is subtle. If Satan could get us to question God's word, then how is God's word going to be trustworthy to the world that we preach it to? And the Bible says, For we are not as many which corrupt the word of God. So there were even people in Paul's say that corrupted God's word. And they even said that, you know, there were other epistles that were written in their name. And that's why he says, you know, if you hear any other gospel, um, contrary to what we, you've heard us preach now, even if it says it's from us, even if it says it's from another angel, believe it not. Now, we talked about in the weeks past about the received text, the traditional text that was received by Christians throughout history. Well, before we end up having a, um, a bunch of modern versions, they end up becoming critical um, editions of the Texas Receptus. This would be still the received text, but they would have a critical apparatus, um, which means they would identify um, different variations that would be found in the critical text as compared to the received text. So they were giving you the received text, but then the notes would have critical remarks about it, and they would give their alternate readings. And these were the forerunners of the actual critical Greek text that came out. Um, these are some of the forerunners, and this is what I mean. I'm not going to read every single one. We're going to um, move on. But these were um, texts that um, came out. Um, usually they, they had to receive texts, but they had critical notes criticizing the received text. And so um, the first text to actually completely challenge the received text was the Greek text of Greece back um, in 1805, where he produced um, his own Greek text based off of the Vaticanus and the Sinaiticus. And then Carl Lackman, he rejected the Texas Receptus and produced um, the first critical Greek text. So Grisback was the one that more he challenged the authority of the um, TR. 
And now Carl Lackman produced the first critical Greek text in print form. And so he was the first major editor to break away from the received text, seeking the Alexandrian text, um, the text from Egypt, the manuscript family from Egypt, um, to pre- produce that in the print form. Then you got Tischendorf. He was the one um, that discovered the Sinaiticus in 1844 at the monastery of St. Catherine in the rubbish where the monks used to kindle their oven um, fires for baking bread and also to keep themselves warm. And um, they told him they had already burnt several baskets um, of the manuscripts. But once Tischendorf showed interest in these manuscripts, the Catholic Church like, you know what, maybe we should hold on to this. Maybe there is some um, value. The Sinaiticus is now um, currently in the British Museum. But um, his works paved a way to destructive textual criticism. Okay, now understand there is lower textual criticism where anybody that's making a translation of the Hebrew and Greek into any language, you need to um, figure out, discover, okay, there's several manuscripts, which is the right one? Okay, which is the right word? Okay, and generally speaking, say you had 10 manuscripts and nine of them had a certain reading and one of them did not, you would most often go with the nine that had it in. So in that sense, textual criticism, that's just part of doing a faithful translating of the Bible. However, after Tischendorf, then it became more of a destructive textual criticism where it was a constant criticism of the manuscripts that Christians have used throughout the ages. Um, um, From the mind of God, the mind of man, this is uh, um, through Bob Jones University Press, and really in the last 30 years, they really came out hard against people that hold to the King James Bible and um, criticize it and are um, really trying to end um, churches that hold to the King James Bible. But listen to this admission. I have this book, From the Mind of God to the Mind of Man. And they say, a textual critic may be an unbeliever when it comes to the Bible's doctrinal truths. But when it comes to the Bible's text, to this question of the Bible's words, a textual critic is initially little more than a reporter. So what they are here paving the way, justifying that, yes, we use unbelievers to translate the Bible. But it's okay, they're just doing it as a reporter. They're skilled in the language, so they're translating it for us. Yes, they're an unbeliever. Yes, they reject the deity of Christ. But we're still going to use them because they're simply as a reporter. You know what, that may make sense for, you know what, maybe, maybe a lot of books, you know what, you hire someone skilled in the languages. But someone that is not a believer in God's word, I would not want them being the ones that produce so-called God's word for me. And so here's some um, more names, different people. Richard K. He was a French Roman Catholic who denied the verbal inspiration of Scripture. Um, Bentley, a classical scholar who treated a book like any other book, they simply said the difficult reading is to be preferred to that which is easy. And, uh, and then Bengal, um, German churches of his day, charged him for heresy, um, against the scriptures. And then you got 
Um, Jacob, um, who was charged with Arian um, heresies, which is a rejection of the Trinity. And Lachman, a German rationalist, again, they said, you know what, the Bible is just a mere book. It's not inspired scripture. And these are all guys that kind of were the forerunners of um, textual criticism. And um, again, John Grisback mentioned him. He was one of the most influential fathers of textual criticism. Westcott and Hort said that the name of Grisback was above that of every other textual critic. And he was rejected by Bible believers in his day. Right? No, this guy is a heretic. He rejects the Bible, and yet now Christians are going to take what he says to be what comes from God? They oppose it. Um, Frederick Nowen, in his book, 1815, An Inquiry into the Integrity of the Greek-Received Text of the New Testament, he said this, It shall be my object to vindicate those important passages of the Received Text which have been rejected from the Scripture canon on the principles of the German method of classification. And some examples, the last 12 verses of Mark. Um, you know what the German classification would say? You know what, we, it, we would go with the more difficult reading than the easy reading. And it's funny, because usually, you know what, people that advocate for modern versions say, you know what, we want the easier reading, not the archaic King James. Well, you know, what they're doing in the Greek is saying, we want the difficult reading, not the easy reading. And then they would also say, we would they, we prefer the shorter reading over the longer read. We'll get more into that later. But um, Frederick Nolan, okay, in the early 1800s, he, um, they, he was speaking about, you know, we're going to show that these are part of the Scripture. Um, 1 Timothy 3.16 was rejected um, by Grisback. And that's where it says God was manifest in the flesh. This one company we keep on mentioning where they changed it to He was manifest in the flesh. And 1 John 5.7 as well. Um, where the, um, there are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost. These three are one. Grisback, of course, being an unbeliever, says, you know what? This verse does not belong in the Bible. And so he was received of his day by the modernists and the Unitarians. Um, officials at the Harvard College in 1809 published an American edition of his critical Greek New Testament because it promoted text criticism, which they called a most powerful weapon to be used against the supporters of verbal inspiration. And so they said, hey, you know, through our scholarly efforts, this is going to be a powerful weapon against those Christians that believe the Bible is verbally inspired, that every word is inspired. Some more names. Um, Trey Shells in 1845. Um, he visited Rome where he was able to see the mysterious Vaticanus manuscript for 42 hours. Um, his great service was to draw English-speaking scholars away from the Texas Receptus. And um, Tregos was prevented from transcribing any of it by two men overseeing the manuscript. They would not allow him to make a copy of it, but he claimed to have smuggled out some of the texts on his shirt cuffs, his fingernails, and that he memorized much of it. It's what he said, and I read that in the book by Alexander Stelter um, in the text and canon of the New Testament. 
that he claimed to have smuggled out some of the text in. And so others, the critical Greek text of Alford. And um, really the big one is the Westcott and Hort Greek text. This is really where the controversy really um, began. And then also after Westcott and Hort, and many believers rejected him, people wanted to still use Westcott and Hort's methods, um, but they knew that the name Westcott and Hort was tarnished so much that they came with the Nestle critical Greek text, which is basically identical, the same thing. But they wanted to try and get away from the name of Westcott and Hort. Same thing with the United Bible Societies um, of their critical Greek text. Now, there are some motivations for revising the King James Version. One of them was, okay, we found some new manuscripts. We found these manuscripts from Egypt. Um, you know what, let's see what they say and use it. And there were more received texts as well, more manuscripts that are of the Byzantine tradition of the Texas Receptus. They found more of those too. So one of the motivations is, you know what, let's look at all of these. Another motivation was literary, uh, um, was that they saw some of the words had become archaic in the King James Bible, that there are some words that we don't use anymore um, in common English. But you know what? You open the NIV, the New King James, they have archaic words too. You know what? Any Bible you pick up, they're going to have archaic words. And you know what? The way you find out what a word means is, you know what? Get a dictionary. Okay? If you don't understand it, 1828 Webster's Dictionary, great dictionary to start. But you know what? There's nothing wrong. Okay? You know what? Updating. Okay. Let's see if we can update an archaic word. Okay? Um, that wouldn't be an impure motivation to have a word in today's English, but it's what it ends up becoming later on. Ecclesiastical was another reason um, for revising the King James Bible. Um, and a big part of it was the Oxford movement in the Church of England, which was a Romanizing of um, trying to bring the Church of England back to some stronger Roman Catholic um, strongholds um, or traditions. And so some of them wanted to do that to replace what they called the Protestant King James Version or Protestant Authorized Version. And another reason they wanted to make changes was theological. There were extreme liberal views that wanted to change the tone of the Bible. They didn't want it to be so harsh or so dogmatic. And so back to these two guys, Westcott and Hort. Um, Westcott was the Anglican Bishop of Durham. Um, Hort was a professor of divinity at Cambridge University. And they labored 28 years to produce their critical Greek text. However, neither of them work with manuscripts themselves. They didn't have the manuscripts. They were depending on the works of others, of Lackman and some of the other guys we mentioned before. They used their critical editions. They weren't used in manuscripts themselves. Some of their beliefs was Mariology. They worshiped Mary, um, baptismal regeneration, um, prayers for the dead. Um, they denied the assistance of the devil. They believe evolution. Um, they rejected the infallibility of the scriptures. And you know what? Sometimes an argument will be made, and it's a fair argument. They'll say, you know what? Some of the King James translators had some of these views as far as um, some of them taught baptismal regeneration. Um, but when you read their writings, you see overall the majority of them did not. 
But these were people that really um, rejected um, the Bible and had these other doctrinal beliefs. And there's also some conspiracies about them being involved in different, um, trying to chase after ghosts and um, things like that, researcher and ghosts. Um, here's a man from Moody Bible Institute, Alfred Martin. He said, at precisely the time when liberalism was carrying the field in the English churches, the theory of Westcott and Hort received wide acclaim. These are not isolated facts. Recent contributions on the subject, that is the present century following mainly the Westcott Hort principles and method, have been made largely by men who deny the inspiration of the Bible. And so here he says, you know what, many of these producing these critical Greek texts, they don't even believe in the inspiration of the Bible. You know what was Satan's tactic? Yea, have God said. And when these new Greek texts were coming out, what was the question? Yea, have God said? Is this really what God said, or did he say this instead? And so here are some of the theories that Westcott and Hort use. That the Bible is to be treated like any other book, that it is not inspired. They go, for we ourselves, we dare not introduce considerations which could not reasonably be applied to other texts. And so, you know what, they wanted to take a view that, you know what, the Bible is not supernaturally inspired, but it's just merely any other book. And their view was, their other theory was, the oldest Greek manuscripts are best, and there was the Sinaiticus of Vaticanus from the 4th um, and 5th century that they said, these two manuscripts are the best, even though the vast majority of manuscripts differ from those two. And the reason those two were able to endure was, one, they weren't really used, and it was written on expensive vellum, on calfskin. And so it was able to endure a lot better than papyrus or early paper-like um, um, product. Westcott and Hort despised the Texas Receptus, and they called it villain, villainous, that it was a villain text. They promoted the theory of the Lucian recension, um, or the Syrian recension, and that they said that the true text was replaced by a corrupt one in the 4th century. So they said that, okay, the, the Vaticanus and the Sinaiticus were the original type manuscripts and then that what happened was, in the 4th century, the Texas Receptus came out and did it replace it, and that it was not discovered until 1,500 years later. So they would have the opposite view of what I would hold you, where I hold you that, you know, it's the text that was used throughout the centuries to receive text, used by Christians throughout history, and then th these two manuscripts were trying to replace it, and they didn't really discover them. One of them told the 15th century, another one in the 18, um, 1800s was it made accessible. And then now all of a sudden, 1800 years later, it's like, we found this new text that we must go back to. And so their theory was, though, that their text was the right text, and that the received text was the new text, and that Christian churches have been deceived for the next 1,500 years, or now 1,700 years. And um, in this book, it says, Nearly all text critics assume that between 250 A.D. and 350 A.D., 
there was a revision of the Greek text which produced the traditional text. And so that's their theory. And again, they say also that shorter readings should be preferred over longer readings. That the Texas Receptors had conflated um, readings. An example, okay? Um, Luke 24, 53. Okay, it would talk about blessing God in the um, Sinaiticus and the Alexandrian. The Western text would say praising God. The Syrian text, the received text that Christians use, said both praising and blessing God. So they said, well, that one's probably wrong. It's longer. Let's go with the shorter um, reading. And there wasn't really any basis for it. It was just a theory that they came up with. You know what? This one says blessing God. This one says praising God. You know what? Maybe the TR changed it to add both of them. And then they said that the more difficult readings are to be preferred above the simpler um, readings. And so if something was harder to understand, put that in instead of when it's easier. And that they believed that they could restore the lost text, the lost manuscripts, that they could reproduce the Bible to finally show what the original said 1,800 years later that Christians have been without the accurate scriptures for the centuries. Some scriptures might have been lost permanently, was their view. Some of them may be lost, and we won't be able to get back. Um, there are instances where no existing manuscript is likely to preserve the original wording. In such cases, scholars must assume that the original wording of the text has been lost or distorted in the course of the copying process. Okay, maybe from a scholar aspect, they go, okay, that makes sense. But you know, there are more copies of the manuscripts, Greek and Hebrew, manuscripts of the Bible, than any other type of manuscript. You know, you take any of your famous um, philosophers, and they believe we got basically the original text that they wrote. But with the Bible, man, we got thousands of manuscripts. And their view is, well, we've probably lost what the original was. Jesus said, heaven and earth shall pass away, but my words shall never pass away. Okay, we end up coming to, okay, you had Westcott and Hort's Greek text coming out. Now we come to the Revised Version in 1881. The plan of the Revised Version was to introduce as few alterations as possible into the text of the Authorized Version consistently with faithfulness. So the goal was, you know, let's just update some of the archaic words. Okay, okay with the King James Bible, okay, from 1611, okay, we actually are using the 1769 edition of the 1611. And many times people will say, okay, look, you don't believe in verbal inspiration either. You had an update. And you know what the updates were? They were like spilling standardizations. Okay? Okay, before, like in 1611, born would be spelled B-O-R-N, and then in another passage, B-O-U-R-N, and another passage, B-O-U-R-N-E. Okay, spilling was not yet standardized in English yet. And so it wasn't so much about a change in words, 
but it was a change, more of upping um, the spilling, and sometimes there would maybe be a cinnamon that would be um, used. Um, but the um, revisionists were not only doctrinally diverse, but they also included unbelievers, Romanists, and Unitarians. Now, the revised version, it was, a, for the most part, a word-for-word -word translation. Nevertheless, it was an accurate translation of a corrupt text, of the Westcott and Hort text. Um, virtually all newer versions are based off of their text um, or other critical Greek texts that are based on the same type of theories. Rice version was, you, they had 28 men for the New Testament. Again, remember the New Testament is where most of the controversy is. Um, you, the Hebrew, there is a few differences in some of the Hebrews, but they are more consistent as compared with the Greek. So they had 28 men. The revivers, revisers were supposed to make as few changes as possible and to be based off of the Texas Receptus. But under a vow of secrecy, each translator was given a private pre-publication copy of Westcott and Hort's text. And you know, you can read it up in history. Um, you got, oh, I'll talk about those books a little bit later. Um, they come up. But um, um, you read some of the books in the old time, in the 1800s. And they talk about it was a vow of secrecy. They said, okay, do not let people know that we use this new critical Greek text. Because the, the, it was told they were going to be using the received text. So one, this translation is done with ulterior motives by people that are lying by some people that are unbelievers, some people um, that were Romanists, and some that were Unitarians that really denied the deity of Christ. Well, early Christians back then, they opposed it. Um, you have Dr. Frederick H.A. Schivner. He was a textual critic as well in the sense of, wanting, okay, when we translate the Bible into a language, we want to find what's the proper reading. So he's a text critic in that sense. He's not a text critic in the sense of denying verbal inspiration of the Bible. And so he saw that the Bible was inspired. He was a member also, Christian man, part of the revision committee of 1881. And he led the minority in opposition to the inroads made by the Westcott and Hort text. So he was part of the committee, but he opposed um, what was going on? Edward Miller. Um, he edited and published the unfinished works of John Bergen, um, the traditional text of the Holy Gospels and the causes of corruption in the traditional text. That you know it, the Westcott Hort text would become a corruption of what was the traditional text. And so Schivner, though, he was one of the translators who led the minority party against the Westcott Hort text, and he would have debates. Um, with Hort. Um, but the majority sided with Westcott and Hort Greek text. Because of his opposition and others, it finally got out that they were using the critical Greek text. So then they would debate about it. John Bergen, one of the foremost 19th century textual scholars of his day, was a professor of divinity at Oxford University, spent 30 years tracing the history of the Bible, making tours of European libraries, and examining, collecting New Testament manuscripts wherever he went. He added particulars of 374 manuscripts previously unknown to the world. So he found this many more manuscripts 
that the world had not yet known. And one of his big works was he collated an index of New Testament citations of church fathers, and it contains over 86,000 quotations. And this is significant because okay, one of the arguments the critical text advocates make is that their Greek text is older than a lot of the received texts. Not all of them, but a lot of them. That the received text was after the 5th century, so they said, you know, ours is older, so it's better. But you know, when he got the church father quotes, and now understand, when we talk about church fathers, some of them were Christians, okay? They're just called church fathers because of them being at the time of the apostles. We understand, you know, the Bible says, call no man father, one's your father. But oftentimes the term is called to early Christians, church fathers. Also lump in the group, though, are heretics. You know what? There were some early heretics as well. But um, there were um, ones that were considered genuine Christians. Polycarp, for example, a disciple of John. He's written things. And he's quoted from different epistles. And what's significant is a lot of these quotes, almost all of these quotes, that quote scripture match the received text. So they were reading from something that matched the received text that came later or what was recognized later. And he had been visited the Vatican in 1860 and examined the Vatican as personally. And he visited Mount Sinai in 1862 to inspect the manuscripts at St. Catherine's, the Sinaiticus. And he defended the Bible as the infallible and inerrant Word of God inspired to his very jots and tittles. Um, he said, The Bible is none other than the voice of him that sitteth upon the throne. Every book of it, every chapter of it, every verse of it, every word of it, every syllable of it, where are we to stop? Every letter of it is to be the direct utterance of the Most High. And he fought against theological modernism in his day. He exposed the ears of Westcott and Hort and of the revised version of what it turned out to be. And he... Likewise, with many of his day, he thought, okay, we can make an update and update just the archaic words. But then he saw that's not what it became. And to what point do we update archaic words? Do we update atonement? Do we um, update propitiation? Those are not words we use in common language, but they are deep, rich, Christian, theological words. And so it's more important to explain, define what the words are than just to change them. And so he rose to the challenge of textual criticism in his day. And he said regarding these new Greek texts that they discovered, it is, however, the systematic deprivation of the underlying Greek which does so grievously offend me. So the Greek text that the revised version is based off of. For this is nothing else but a poisoning of the river of life at its sacred source. Our revisers, with the best and purest intentions, no doubt, stand convicted of having deliberately rejected the words of inspiration in every page and of having substituted for them fabricated readings which the church has long since refused to acknowledge or else has rejected with abhorrence and which only survive at this time in a little handful of documents of the most depraved type. 
He, called, he said this about the Vaticanus and the Sinaiticus. It's worthless. The most depraved which has ever appeared in print. Defective scholarship. Most scandalously corrupt copies that stand. Most shamefully mutilated texts. Fabricated readings. Ancient blunders. Intentional perversions of truth. And he says, it matters nothing that they are discovered on careful scrutiny to differ essentially not only from 99 out of 100 of the whole body of extant manuscripts besides, but even from one another. So he's saying, you know what, the Vaticanus and the Sinaiticus, they don't just differ from the received text, they differ from one another. That they don't even match each other in their readings. In the Gospels alone, Vaticanus, um, classified as B in the um, textual criticism world. Um, it's found to omit almost 3,000 words, add over 500, substitute over 900, transpose 2,000, modifies 1,100 in all, 7,578. The Sinaiticus omitted... Um, almost 3,500. So we see that there's all these differences and even they're different from one another as well. And it goes, and be it remembered that the omissions, additions, substitutions, transpositions, and modifications are by no means the same in both. It is, in fact, easier to find two consecutive verses in which these two manuscripts differ the one from the other than two consecutive verses in which they entirely agree. So he says, you know what, here's two corrupt manuscripts, and it's easier to find that they're even different from one another than you even find that they match. After the revised version came out, there was the American Standard Version, which is basically the American equivalent of the revised version. And, and in the Revised Standard Version of the New Testament in 1946, you know what, when the American Standard Version copyright expired, you know what, to make more money, you know what, you need to produce a new copyright, and it was appointed by the National Council of Christian Churches to revise the American Standard Version, which was a heretical ecumenical group still around um, today. Um, there, then the revised, in the Revised Standard Version, um, Edgar Godspeed, one of the translators, believed that Jesus became the Son of God at his baptism. Henry um, taught that Jesus was conceited and given to overstatements, lies. Um, said that Christ's miracles were fabricated through time and tradition. Clarence Craig denied the physical resurrection of Christ. Walter Belly believed the Old Testament miracles were legends. And these are people that produced the early on new versions that were coming out. The New American Standard Bible, um, produced by the um, Lockman Foundation, and this is where um, some fundamentalist Christians end up being divided. You know what? Some fundamentalists believe, you know what? This is a good thing, because from a scholarly perspective, it was a great translation in the sense of being word for work. But then the other side of fundamental Christians said, no, we reject this. Because instead of saying the virgin, that Mary was a virgin, it says she was a young woman. And, it, and the reason is because it's based on the other Greek text. Sure, it may be a faithful translation, 
but it's the underlining manuscript that it's translated from that makes it wrong. And now this is interesting. It was a panel of 58 unknown translators. To this day, we don't know who the translators are. And um, I originally wrote this out like 10 years ago, and so I went and re-double-checked just to see, okay, his new news came out. Nope, it's still anonymous. Why? Why be anonymous on who the translators are? We know who the King James translators were. We know who the previous um, translators were before the King James um, and stuff. And then we see that their texts um, are pretty identical. But um, this was the interdenominational group. They did say what groups they came from. Presbyterian, Methodist, Baptist, Church of Christ, Disciples of Christ, Mennonites, Nazarenes, Assemblies of God, Congregationals, and Evangelical Free. And the reasoning of this was supposed to convey the message that the translation would be accurate since it's not being done by one's denominational's bias. But the result was that it ended up becoming a weak translation since they didn't want to offend any denominations. And so at first it sounds good, okay? We could cross-check one another. But then it becomes, okay, we don't want to offend one another, and so they would rather water down what the Bible truly said. And one of the committee members, Frank Logson, you know, you get an old New American Standard Bible, and you'll see he wrote the preface. He wrote about it. And this is what he says. I'm afraid I'm in trouble with the Lord because I encouraged him to go ahead with it. We laid the groundwork. I wrote the format. I helped to interview some of the translators. I sat with the translators. I wrote the preface. And he's like, you know what? We've changed the Word of God. He goes, friends... You can say the authorized version is absolutely correct. How correct? 100% correct. And he came out rejecting the New American Standard Bible that he had much involvement in it being produced. The New International Version. This ended up becoming the Christian's favorite um, when it came out. You know what? Through text before, early on, with the textual criticism, okay, Christians rejected it. But you know, over time, it ends up becoming the norm. And the New International Version ended up becoming popular. 110 scholars assisted in the translation, 34 religious groups, and some that denied the Bible is the Word of God. Um, a lesbian and a homosexual serve on the committee. Um, Virginia Mullencott, she was a consultant, and she's written books, Omnigender, um, um, is a homosexual my neighbor, a positive Christian response, the divine feminine, the biblical imagery of God as female, um, transgender journeys. And so it's a lesbian, very open now. And so they say that while they didn't know it at the time that she was, um, but, and she even said that, you know what, she didn't want the word homosexual even used in the IV. The word homosexual is sometimes used in the IV. But the word sodomite is completely omitted. And they replace the word sodomite with male prostitute. Well, a sodomite could be a male prostitute, but a sodomite entails a lot more than just a male prostitute. And so, you know, what the NIV did end up weakening its view 
on homosexuality. You'll still find some verses that teach homosexuality is wrong, but you'll find some that it really softens it, it weakens it. Um, it says homosexual offenders, um, which could mean, okay, you could be homosexual, just don't participate in the act. Or it could mean if you offend a homosexual, that you're in danger. But even bigger than her role was Martin Woodstraw. He was the chairman of the Old Testament Translation Committee, and he was an avowed homosexual. And he says, there is nothing in the Old Testament that corresponds to homosexuality as we understand it today. Chairman of the Old Testament Translation Committee. These are the ones producing the new Bibles, folks. Okay. Okay, you, and you have the ESV. Um, the Holy Bible English Standard Version is adapted from the Revised Standard Version of Bible, basically taking the Revised Standard Version, looking back at the critical Greek text, but trying to make it similar to the Revised Version, which remember the Revised Standard Version, or the Revised Version, and then the Revised Standard Version, that was where the controversy all stemmed from in the beginning. And you know what? Their copyright division of Christian education of the National Council of the Churches of Christ in the USA. All rights reserved. And you know when you, pr- when you list a new version, you know, like if we put, produce a verse on the screen, you know, if you go to another church that uses all the new versions, they put like NIV in parentheses, ESV, because of the copyright. That they have to list that um, if, if, it's, if they list more than so many words, um, they have to get permission from the copyright holder to produce it. Well, you know what? The Word of God's not bound. And yes, the King James Bible had a crown copyright to preserve um, the purity of the text. But you know what? Here in America, we're able to freely produce it. And, and there's two reasons copyrights are made. Sometimes it's made to preserve the integrity of the text. Other times it's just to make a dollar. And um, you see, like, the new versions, they always say, okay, it's easier to understand. And a year later, a new version comes out. You know, it's all about the money. And um, the method of translation, okay, of most of the new versions, um, their, their method was a dynamic equivalency. And that view was that the readability of the translation is more important than the preservation of the original words and the grammatical structure. That the words are of lesser importance as compared to the meaning of the text. And so they attempted to convey the thought expressed in the Greek text at the expense of literalness. They say, okay, we don't want it to be a literal translation we just want it to be, okay, what does it mean? Okay, let's translate that thought in New English. And so rather than it being word for word, it is a thought for thought translation. You know what? The Bible says God's words are what? Pure. That we're not to add. That we're not to take away from. That we're not to change. But when we, when we translate it as a thought for thought, then it becomes my interpretation of what it means rather than being a translation. It ends up being more of a paraphrase. And so they don't view the words that were given really as being inspired, but that it is just the meaning that would be preserved. And this is a list of the translations that use the dynamic equivalency. 
That they say the readability, as long as people understand what it says, is more important than what it actually did say. You know, we taught in Sunday school that, you know what, there's the unnatural man. They're spiritually discerned. They're not going to be able to understand what the Bible says. Except for the gospel opens their eyes. Then you got the carnal man that can't really take the meat because he's a babe in Christ and he has a carnal behavior. And then you have the spiritual man, you know, that's following the leading of the Spirit of God and asking God, help me to understand this. All these translations, and there's more than these, but these are simply a dynamic equivalency um, of the Bible. Now understand that in every translation, there may be a dynamic equivalency of idioms. Okay, you know what? Um, there's words that um, maybe are, were um, used differently. And you know what? The King James Bible has a very few amount of those. One of those is where, okay, a Bible says, God forbid. And stuff. And what it was was it was in the Greek, it was a way the strong contagion of saying, No, certainly not so. This is absolutely forbidden. And so that was the phrase, the figure of speech. But what you end up having in these new translations is the entire script passages are done is a thought for thought instead of a word-for-word translation. So you end up having a multitude of Bible version, versions. And this is what John Bergen said. It's the guy that battled against in the 1800s. He says, The country has been flooded with two editions of the New Greek text. And thus the door has been set wide open for universal mistrust of the truth of Scripture to enter. And you know what we have today? We have people that don't trust the Bible. You know what? We have people, I encounter them going soul winning, and they'll say, well, how do you know what the Bible really says? It's been translated so many times. It's been revised so many times. And it's going to be revised again. How do you know what it says? Now, my answer makes more sense than what most of their answers would be, that, you know what, we still hold to a receive um, text, traditional text view. You know what the Bible says? Forever, O Lord, thy word is settled in heaven. It's settled. God's word was settled before we were here. God already knew what he was going to have written down on paper and ink for us. It's not for us to change it. The Bible says, For God is not the offer of confusion, but of peace. It's in all churches of the saints. You know, you go to some churches, they'll use the NIV for one verse, the New King James for another verse, maybe the King James for a different verse, the English Standard verse, another verse, and they're trying to make it say really how they want it to say. Well, let's read the word for what it says, not change it for what we want it to say. John Bergen said, as surely as, it, or for, um, in the eight, late 1800s, three and a half years um, he, he said, I was in Dean Bergen's study at Chaucer. It was midnight, dark, and cold without. He, was ju- he had just extinguished the lights, and it was dark and getting cold within. We mounted the stairs to retire to rest, and his last words of that night have often rung in my ears. And this way he said, as surely as it is dark now, and as certainly we, as the sun will rise tomorrow morning, so surely will the traditional text be vindicated and the views I have striven to express be accepted. I may not live to see it. Most likely I shall not, but it will come. 
He says, you know what? He, be- he believed that the day would come when people would wake up. And really kind of like in the 1950s, 1960s, people started to wake up. But now we're kind of, as a whole, we're blinded to it again. Um, but he saw that, you know what? The traditional text would be recognized. And you do have, um, like, hey, this isn't the deal with the received text. That's the New Testament. But in, with the Old Testament, you end up having the Dead Sea Scrolls vindicate the old um, Hebrew Masoretic text. Deuteronomy says, okay, a lot of times people will say, well, we just don't know because we don't have the originals today. Well, you know, we see here's a, a certain command God gave, and you could basically really see how it's applied to all of his word. He says, for this commandment which I command thee this day, it is not hidden from thee, neither is it far off. It is not in heaven that thou should say, who shall go up for us to heaven and bring it unto us, that we may hear it and do it. Neither is it beyond the sea that thou shouldest say, who shall go over the sea for us and bring it unto us, that we may hear it and do it. But the word is very nigh unto thee in thy mouth and in thy heart that thou mayest do it. You see, you know what? God gave us his word not to hide it in a cave. Not to hide it from us where we don't know what the original says. No, he told us. He told us he would preserve his words. And we simply by faith need to accept that. Be like God promised he would preserve his word. We don't need to rediscover some lost text and compile it together. God has preserved his word. But you know what? Knowing that, it doesn't do good if you don't read it. You know what? Be in the word of God. Read it. Cherish it. In earlier lessons, you know, you could get them on CD or online. We talk about some of the different men that God used. You know, Willem Tyndale and others who are burned at the stake for translating the Bible into the English language. And um, you know what? Cherish the word of God that men have died that we may have. And understand too, it's not really the men that kept it for us, it was God fulfilling his word. And you know what, lastly, if you don't know Jesus Christ as your savior, you know really, all of this, it's not really maybe gonna make a lot of sense. Um, But Jesus is the gospel that we need. The death, the burial and resurrection. That without Jesus, we don't have eternal life. And if you don't know Jesus as your own Savior, if you don't know if you died today that you would be in God's presence in a good way, in heaven with Him, please speak with me and we'll show you from God's Word um, and show you from the Word how to understand the Gospel message. Um, Next week, we're going to be doing a lesson on a more pure Word. And this is where we're really going to show the comparison. Okay, we've been dealing with a lot of the facts, a lot of the information. But how did it change it? It's often said, isn't it just the same thing, but easier to understand? You know, after I got saved and then I was starting to go to the Baptist church, I had an NIV with me, and they, and, and they explained it to me. And at first I was like, isn't it just easier to understand? Just an updated language? And then I researched and studied it. They taught me and researched it. I used to have a web page about defense of the King James. It was from when I was even a teenager. And um, it got, it got um, so old and dated, it's not there anymore. But um, a lot of stuff to research. And, but really, you know what? You really have faith that, you know what? God would 
fulfill his promise to preserve his words for us. Not just the thoughts, but his words. And so next week, we're going to be going through and seeing the comparisons. And then next month, we're going to be going, starting to preach through the Gospel of John. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we just thank you, Lord, for your word, that you have preserved it for us. And Lord, we just ask that you would help us to understand it. You know, even today, there are times where there's things I don't understand. And Lord, I pray, Lord, that you help me to understand it and open um, my eyes that I may see wondrous things out of your law, out of your word. And Lord, I just pray, Lord, that this will um, maybe provoke people to study out and see what are the things I said are so. And we love you, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen. You know, if you have any questions, I'll be in the foyer. Usually we do it as part of the service, but I just don't want to keep you any longer. So um, you can stay longer. I just don't want to force you guys to stay longer.